It is bittersweet to announce that this will be, unless the Lord intervenes during this service, which he could, this will be the last sermon in the book of Acts. And uh, yeah, right? You could actually probably preach 50 sermons on that last, you know, 17 through 31, but um, yeah, it's, I don't know, I, I'm, it's just weird for me, you know, just to be thinking that, okay, you're, you know, every Thursday you're not going to be going to that book to write a sermon, so I'm not, I mean, I know what we're supposed to be doing in the coming weeks, but I, I don't know, I'm going to probably try to go back. Somebody suggested, just go back through Acts, and Shannon went, oh, so I figured that we would gauge your response to that idea on her, ah, so we're not going to be going back through the book, right? Although you know if we did, we would get a lot more out of it. It would be different, so um, pretty good stuff. But anyways, we're going to wrap it up today. And I would say that uh, it's been a life-changing journey, at least for me. Um, it is the book, God has worked through the book, the Holy Spirit has worked through the book of Acts to change my view of the church how it functions, its mission, uh, why it exists, and um, it's been probably the most challenging uh, scripture study. And I've taught through some books. I've taught through the Gospel of Mark, halfway through Matthew, through Colossians, back in my in my last place where I worked. And uh, but this one has been, oh wow, it's just been so so challenging just to see the apostles and see the church bring the gospel into the you know into the different realms and the Gentile realm and all this. It's just been amazing. Um, I've got some statistics for you from the series, and I thought they would be cool. This is our 108th sermon in the series, so uh, basically 108 Sundays. So it's not three years, it's a little over two years that we've been studying the book. We've been studying in the book for three years, but it's actually taken us 108 Sundays to to get through the book. So really, just a little over two years. I know it just feels really long. Um, about 3,500 words per sermon is what I write, sometimes 4,100. You remember back in the early days when some of the sermons were like an hour and 20 minutes? You remember that? Bruce was praising God. Others were saying, who is this guy? Get him off the stage. Uh, so, But the average is about 3,500 words per sermon that's 378,000 words for the series. That's 850 pages of commentary that have been written. 850 pages of commentary. Most commentaries aren't even that big these days. Unless, of course, you get some of the old dead guys. About 1,500 study hours have been put into this. 1,500 study hours. And I say all this not to put the spotlight on me and to say, you know, look what I've done. I've done Jack. I say this because this entire series and all these stats and all that's been preached and said and read out loud and all of this stuff is all to the glory of God, and, and it is an example of His goodness and faithfulness to this local body. That's what it is. And so I want to give the Lord Jesus an insane round of applause for this accomplishment because it's all Him, man. Man, if it were up to me, I can find other things to do on Sunday morning. So just know that it is Jesus. It's all Jesus. This, is, uh, this represents this body of work and all that we've heard and all that's been pondered and thought about and read. It's just, it's just a testimony 
to his goodness and faithfulness to us here at RHC. Man, it's even a bit overwhelming when you really ponder and consider how good and faithful he's been to us. Not just in this series, but especially in this series, but in every other facet in his provision and everything else that he does for us. Ah, it's overwhelming. Now, last week we looked at the first half of Acts 28. You know, how the apostle Paul, how he did three months of intensive missions work on the island of Malta. Remember that. How many of you guys were here last week? We looked at that, right? That was pretty exciting because they were in this crazy storm and they like crash landed at Malta and we would have thought that Malta would have been just like a safe habitat for them until they could pick it up and go to the next place. But it actually became an amazing mission field. Three months of intensive missional work there amongst natives. Uh, pretty, pretty incredible. We studied that. We looked at that last week. We looked at how Paul, after that three months sailed to Italy and then traveled to Rome via the Appian or Appian Way. That's that highway that takes you from where he landed all the way up to Rome, 100 miles plus. When he arrived at Rome, he was given his own place, which was pretty exciting. That's amazing. As kind of a house arrest prisoner, he was given his own place, and he was assigned a single guard to kind of watch over him. And um, while he awaited trial before Emperor Nero, or however that was going to play out. And so that's where we left off. Let's pray one more time, and we'll pick it up at 2817a. Father, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit in power. I believe he's already here. I believe he's already here in power. Wherever he goes, he's in power. But I pray that you would send him in a powerful way for us, that he would influence, impact us, change our hearts, apply the truth, that we might become more like Jesus today, that we walked in as this type of person, but we would walk out a little more like Jesus as you sanctify us by the word. Receive all the glory and praise here today, Father, all that is said in this sermon, all that is sang, all that is prayed, every bit of it, receive all the glory here. It's all for you. You are good and faithful. You alone are good and faithful. And we want to continue just to focus on your word. Teach us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 17a, you there? Let's do it. I'm not used to not having the entire Philbrin crew up in the front row here. It's weird having you guys in the back. It's throwing me off. My feng shui is out of place here. I have no idea what feng shui is, but I've heard it on some of those do-it-yourself networks. 17a, after three days, after three days, he, that's Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, comma, stop, right there. What we see right here in the text is, again, Paul wasting no time. I mean, he'd been at sea for, you know, uh, 14 days in a storm, and then months before that on islands in these places, and he finally gets to his destination, and you would have thought that at this point, that's the time to go to Disney World, that's the time to take some leisure, that's the time to take a break. Three months of day-to-day, 24-7, I'm sure, 
intensive ministry on Malta. He, he travels across the, across the ocean again, across a small section. He gets to Italy, travels a hundred and something miles, 140 miles north. He gets there three days. That's it. After three days, he's already on the move. He's already beginning to enter into more missional work. He's already on it. And we've talked about this over and over with this guy. This guy was by no means a procrastinator. And he was on it. Three days. I preach one Sunday, and I think I need a week off after that. Well, I really did something, you know. Some of you guys, you know, you you come here, and I, I did hospitality last week. It's time to take some time off, you know. And that's just, is that, I guess that's an American idea, right? It's like for every couple of hours we put in doing something, we have to back that with some vacation time. That's what we've been groomed to do here. And uh, we just don't see that anywhere in the book of Acts. We see a church on the move, on mission. Paul exemplified this. No break! Just keeps going, keeps cranking it out. We've learned that about him. He was a man of action. If there was something to be done, he would do it without hesitation or procrastination. He is an example to Christian men and husbands in the church. Guys, we are to be men of action, not procrastinators. What you can do now, do now. Don't put it off. We are to what? Make the Best use, the most use of our time because the days are evil. We've said this over and over in this series. What did Paul do after three days? It says he called together the local leaders of the Jews. What did he do here? He invited the Jewish synagogue leaders, there were some synagogues in Rome, to come to his house so that he could what? Speak with them, so that he could address them, so that he could preach to them. And I'll tell you what, let me tell you what he was doing. What was one of his trademarks? What did he do every time he went into a new community or town? He went to the who first. Well, yes, he went to the Jew first, right? That was his calling, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Here's what's extraordinary about this. Paul could not technically go anywhere. He was on house arrest. He gets into Rome, he gets into a new community, a new place for mission, a new place for ministry, and the first thing he did in every other community is go right into the synagogues and preach Christ crucified, preach He is the risen Messiah, He is your hope, He's what you've been waiting for, that's what he did everywhere, but here he can't leave, he can't go out and visit the synagogue, so what does he do? He summoned the Jewish leaders from all the synagogues to come to him, it's amazing, on mission. We talked about that last week. On mission. Just non-stop with this guy. Relentless. It's amazing. What did he say to them when they arrived? Look at 17b through 19. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, that's free, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. What we see here is Paul's final defense speech. 
I think this is probably the sixth one. We've tried to, well, we've covered all of them, but we've tried to identify whenever he did these things. Remember, he did one like in Jerusalem. He did a couple before some Roman governors. This is the last one right here in the book of Acts. And in this one, he included five details right there in 17b through 19. And this is basically a snapshot of his entire case, okay? The details. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people. What he's doing here is he's declaring his innocence. Brothers, I didn't do anything wrong to the people of our nation, to the Jewish people. He's he's granting himself clemency here. He's granting himself innocence. He's he's telling them, man, I I didn't do anything wrong. Obviously, when they showed up at his house, they could tell he had a Roman guard. He had a chain on him. Something was wrong. He wasn't free to move about. And and he opens right up with saying, hey, I, I didn't do anything against our people. First thing he says. Second, Though I had done nothing against the customs of our fathers. I didn't, do, I didn't commit any crimes against our people. I didn't breach any of the customs of our fathers. The law of Moses is what he's speaking about here. I didn't do anything wrong against our people. I didn't do anything wrong against our customs. That would probably include the temple. Remember the charges against him, sedition, those things. What he's doing is he's coming right out of the gate, defense speech, saying, hey, I didn't do anything wrong against our people. I didn't do anything wrong against the customs. And he says... And yet, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Basically, what he's saying is, that's why I have this chain on. That's kind of why I'm here. Uh, I'm a prisoner, and I was brought to Rome as a prisoner. You see me as I am. That's why I'm standing here now the way that I am, with the chain and all that. Four, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Basically, he's going back to where, you know, he got arrested and he was turned over to the Romans. And we're talking about the two governors, Felix and Festus, who tried him and could find nothing wrong with him, worthy of the death penalty. He's saying, man, I got turned over to the Romans, but they couldn't find anything wrong. And yet I'm still here. Fifth, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had, done, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Here he says, you know what, the Romans found nothing wrong with me. I hadn't breached anything worthy of death or anything else. But the Jews kept objecting to the idea of me being freed. My liberty, if you will. And he says, I couldn't get anywhere, basically, in the case. And so I was left with no, the only option, I suppose, and that was to appeal to Caesar because I just could not get a fair deal. You know, the Jews kept interfering and whatever. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation. I hadn't done anything wrong against the nation of Israel, is what he says. So this is really just a boiled down version of his entire case, right? We've already studied it at length in detail. This is the summary of all summaries, if you will. We're at the end of the book. Luke is summarizing. This is my case. He brings it before the Jewish leaders in Rome. In verse 20, Paul told them that there are basically two reasons why he brought them together at his house. First, he brought them together to tell them about his case, obviously. Why did he do this? It's like a preemptive strike is what we see here. He, he, when he first got there, he brought them to him to tell them about his case because he wasn't sure if they knew about him. He wasn't sure if paperwork or documentation or, or word had reached Rome about why he was coming and you know, why he was going to be there and why he was going to be tried again. He wasn't sure if the Sanhedrin had notified 
the synagogues or Jewish leaders in Rome at this point. He did not know, and so he took it upon himself to give them a first-hand account of what was going on. Because, right, if word had got there, they would already have fixed opinions, and, you know, he, he would just sound like he's defending himself. He, he begins this whole situation with these people with being right up front with them. This is why I'm here. You know, I'm not really sure if you've heard. And so he does this sort of preemptive strike. That's why he called them together. Second, he brought them together to tell them about the true or real reason why he was in chains. Because of the hope of Israel. Right? You see it in the text. Because this is the real reason why I have this chain and this guy over here is watching my every move. Oh, the Jews objected to me and this happened and that happened and the Romans couldn't find anything wrong with me. But let me help you understand why I'm really in shackles because of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel was the coming of the Messiah and the resurrection and kingdom associated with His coming. It was Paul's preaching of Jesus as the resurrected Messiah and King that antagonized the authorities, right? Isn't that what got him in hot water everywhere he went with the Jews? Boy, he could hang out with the Jews all day, but as soon as he started applying all the messianic promises and all that to Jesus, that's when all heck broke loose. That's what got him in trouble. That's what got him in chains. Being on trial for his belief in Israel's hope was a recurring theme in Paul's defense speeches, right? Acts 23, 6, 24, 14 to 15, 26, 6. We've seen this over and over. He would often say, well, I'm in chains because of the hope of Israel. And that is a total reference to Jesus. How did the Jewish leaders respond to Paul's declaration, him coming right out and saying these things? Look at 21 through 22. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from what you uh, hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. The Jewish leaders basically denied any knowledge of Paul's case, saying that they had received no letters about him and or word about him from any of the Jewish brothers. Now, some have found it to be incredible that no word about Paul had reached Rome's Jewish community. They find that just to be you know, insane. There's no way. But it is probable for a couple reasons. First, Paul may have actually outrun the mail or the messenger, if you will. When he departed from Caesarea, he left on one of the last ships of the previous sailing season. And when he arrived at Italy, he was aboard one of the first ships of the present one. It would have been difficult for a messenger from Palestine to make it to Rome before Paul did. So Paul may have just outrun the mail. When Paul was sent, there was paperwork sent with him. Maybe that paperwork got destroyed when the ship sank. But in any case, he may have outran getting all the way to Rome before some messenger could have made it over there by ship. And that's how they would have traveled. It was a thousand miles away. It would have taken probably a year to get there via land. Only a few months, a couple months by sea. But I think he probably outran a messenger. Because I can tell you this, they would have sent paperwork or somebody there to inform the Jewish leaders about this leader of the sect. Right? Wouldn't they have? Of course they would have. 
Second, some have suggested that there was very little communication between the Jews of Rome and those of Judea. I think that's highly probable as well. There, as I said, was a thousand miles between them. And the Judean Jews tended to look down on the scattered or, you know, diaspora Jews. You know, they didn't think too highly of the Jews that were scattered out among all the other nations. They kind of had their own little, you know, Judean clique going in the Jerusalem area. And, and that was the hub and that was the center, you know, of, of the Jewish world. And, and so everyone outside of that is, it's, it's cool if you're Jewish, but you're inferior in a way because you're not here in the promised land, if you will. And so there probably wasn't a whole lot of communication between them. I don't think that the two groups were tied. I don't think they were homies, if you will. There is another possibility. The Jewish leaders may have, and this seems to be the one that most commentators go with, the Jewish leaders may have been aware of Paul's case and were deliberately playing dumb, ignorant, because they did not want to get involved. Oh, 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 you're that dude that's been stirring up all this trouble and, and this has led to riots and all of these things in all of the Jewish communities, wherever you've gone. They may have been aware of this and just simply pleaded ignorance. Oh, well, we haven't heard... Hey, Freddie, we haven't heard anything about you. Now, why would they do this? Because 10 years earlier, they had been temporarily expelled from Rome. Why? For clashing with Christians. You see, there was a Christian presence in Rome for many years before Paul got there. There were churches there, and there was a major clash between the Jewish leaders there and the Jews there and the Christians, so much to the point that the emperor said, all you Jews, get out of here. Made them all leave Rome. And so you, you think about this. Another clash with the Christians here, especially Paul, who's kind of like, uh, I don't know, maybe the patriarch or something of that nature. He's like the big dog in the Christian faith. A, class, a clash with him would obviously maybe result in another expulsion. And, and they, there's no way that they would have wanted that. They didn't want to take the risk. MacArthur says that it's that. And that could be. They were just pleading ignorance. We don't know what you're talking about. And in verse 22, they turned to diplomacy, the Jewish leaders did that is, they began to assure Paul of their interest in his theological position. What does it say? We desire to hear from you what your views are. Oh, we'd like to hear for ourselves what your views are. <laughs> they also let Paul know that they were not completely ignorant of Christianity, which had been established in Rome, as I said, for many years. How do we know that? It says, for with regard to this sect, because Christianity was referred to as a sect then, sectarians, Christians were thought of, for with regard to this sect, they said, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And, and you know, we, we see this. This, is, this was written how long ago? And we read it right there back then that it was spoken against, it was persecuted, it was, you know, the, the world tried to kill it off, tried to kill our faith off, tried to kill Christianity off, and, and, and today we see that and we throw our arms up, what's going on in the world? Guys, this has been going on since the beginning. The world hates Christ. We killed him. Well, ISIS, we better bomb them. This ISIS thing has been playing out for 2,000 years. 
The people of Christ have been harassed on every continent, in every community. Why? Because the world hates Christ. Get used to it and quit watching Fox News. Please, for the love of God. Another Christian died today. I know, it's terrible. I hate it. I hate the fact that our brothers and sisters are being slaughtered. I hate it. I want them to flourish and to prosper and and to preach Christ and all that. And guess what? They are doing that through their deaths. Well, that's the worst thing that can happen to them. That's the best thing that can happen to them. There's no greater testimony than when a saint is slaughtered in the name of Allah. And we sit here and, oh, I can't believe... If I was flying those bombers, you wouldn't do anything. You'd get killed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of evangelism. We rejoice in not the suffering or any of that, but we rejoice in the fact that this is the way that it's been since day one. God has ordained it to be this way. And these deaths are not meaningless. They're meaningful. And we pray and we pray and we pray. What do we pray for? That ISIS is defeated? I guess. Here's what we pray for. Jesus, come back and put an end to all of it. Glorify yourself. Glorify your church. And he will. And he's coming. And it'll be as a thief in the night. I hope we're all ready for that. It's been going on since day one, guys. Now look at 23a. When they had appointed a time for him, this is the Jewish leaders, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Okay, what do we see here? The Jewish leaders set up a date and time to come listen to Paul speak. Look at they were organized. Well, we'd like to hear more about what you're talking about and your theology, and we know that it's not a good thing because the whole world basically hates you, but we'd like to do that, and how about Tuesday at 8 a.m.? I mean, these guys were, you know, they, they worked their iPhone schedules. You know, ting, 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 you know. They had a date and time set up, and they brought more leaders and probably a few congregates as well, right? I mean, look what it says. Lodging, they came to his lodging in what? Greater what? Numbers. So the first group of leaders that came, they actually multiplied and brought more leaders and probably some other people that were interested in hearing what Paul had to say. I would say that Paul's place at this point was packed out. Was packed out. I just love that. That God, you know, we think, well, they came to hear Paul and all that. We're talking providence here, guys. We're talking God's sovereignty. Paul couldn't go out and preach the gospel. He was on house arrest, so God, what, brought people to him so he could preach the gospel. God's getting his word out there, and he's getting it to the people that need to hear it. Doesn't matter what's happening. Doesn't matter house arrest. Doesn't matter about jail. God is going to use that person right where they're at. And we have this glorious thing each weekend. You know, the church comes together and and gathers to worship Jesus and preach the truth and all that. And what does God do? He did it back in these days and he does it today. He draws people and brings them to the church so they can hear these things and be ministered to. It's amazing. Paul's place was packed out. Look at 23B. Oh, man. You guys get fried at me for going long. From morning till evening... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right? 
From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Amazing. Paul spent the entire day from morning till evening proclaiming the way of salvation to them. Luke records that he was expounding to them expounding there's a depth here breaking the old testament scriptures down line by line showing them right from the scripture in context these prophetic things what have you expounding to them what testifying to the kingdom of god and trying to convince them about jesus both from the law of moses and from the prophets the kingdom of god encompasses God's rule in the sphere of salvation, not just the millennial reign of Christ. When we think of the kingdom of God, we tend to think of the millennial reign of Christ and beyond that, but we don't think of God's sphere of salvation. And that's what this is. It's sort of an all-encompassing kind of thing here. Kingdom of God is God saving. It's saving those people into the kingdom, and it's the future kingdom is what we see. Testifying to the kingdom basically meant preaching the gospel that's what when you testify to the kingdom back in this day in this particular text it meant preaching the gospel the good news that god sovereignly calls sinners hopelessly caught in the realm of satan death and destruction to enter the realm of salvation life and glory Paul proclaimed the truths concerning Christ, the way of salvation and righteous living. You know, Paul was fantastic and really good at preaching Christ and preaching repentance. Belief in Christ will look like righteous living. It will produce righteous living. He never got those things backwards. He never got you live righteous first, then you get saved. He always got the gospel right, you know. Christ saves and then you live righteously, which could be translated as repentance. The two go hand in hand. You can't unmarry them. They're together forever. Keep that in mind. When you believe in Christ, when it's true, when you are regenerated, and when you are set apart by the Holy Spirit, you will begin to live a righteous life. So he would preach Jesus to them. He's your Messiah. He's who you must believe in. And that will be followed by righteous living. A life surrendered to Christ, to His glory. He pointed the way for them to enter the sphere of salvation and enjoy fellowship with God, right? That's Jesus. The vehicle Paul used in trying to convince them about Jesus was the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now this was Paul's pattern, right? Throughout the book of Acts for evangelizing Jews. He would always turn to the law and show how it points to Christ, and he would turn to the prophets to show how they point to Christ. Those things are foreshadows. Those things point ahead. And that's how he preached to Jews. That makes sense to them, because what? They're experts in the law. They study the prophets day and night, waiting for Messiah to come. But he basically takes the law of Moses, all the law. He takes the prophets, all that they said, and he said, look, it's fulfilled in Jesus. That's what he would do. That's how he would expound the scriptures. How amazing must these sermons have been, and we've seen a few of them back early in Acts, to be able to preach Christ from the Old Testament. What an amazing thing. There's a lot of guys doing that today, and it's really exciting. And Christ is meant to be preached from the Old Testament, 
not just law, not just the prophets. It's all about Jesus. How did his hearers respond to this all-day preach-a-thon? Right? Were they like Shannon a little bit ago? Oh. <laughs> she just gave me the signal. This means shut up. Now, I'm talking about preaching Acts again for another two years. It's justified. How did they respond to this all-day sermon, this amazing message he preached? And as I said, you can go back through Acts and look at some of his sermons. This is just abbreviated here. It's summarized. Look at verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In other words, the room became divided, right? Some believed, and others did not. Uh, the believers, the new believers, these new converts, kind of joined together and assembled and like, wow, this is really amazing. I'm, I'm different right now. And the people that didn't kind of stuck together and were like, eh, this is dumb. That's what happened. Some believe and others did not. Now this happened in other places where Paul preached the gospel at Iconium, Acts 14.4, at Thessalonica, Acts 17.4-5, at Corinth, Acts 18.6-8, at Ephesus, Acts 19.8-9. In fact, it happened everywhere he preached, but those are some great examples you can go back and research. Whenever Paul preached the gospel, there were people who got saved and there were people who did not. Both things happened. And we need to be very careful here not to attribute the conversions to Paul's giftedness, eloquence, oratory skills, ability to persuade, his charisma, amazing communicator. Oh, I hear this all the time. That guy over at that church, amazing communicator. Listen, right? Sarcasm, oozing. Paul's the only one that got that. And Josh, because he's smiling. Listen, it wasn't because of Paul. When people come to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, God is the one who opens the door of faith. We read that in Acts 14, 27. Paul's sermon was convincing because he spoke God's Word, Scripture, and because the Holy Spirit supernaturally applied the Word of God to the hearts of some of those people, some of those listeners. That's actually what happened. So we can't attribute, you know, this whole thing that's playing out to the Apostle Paul. He would never attribute that to himself, and we shouldn't either. Now, I hear people in the church today boast all the time. I hear it all the time. I see it on TV. I read about it in magazines. I hear people talking about it around town and the places that I'm at. I hear them say things like, well, I'm a soul winner. You heard the phrase? Be a soul winner. You need to go out and win souls. I'm a soul winner. That guy over there, that guy over there at Calvary Temple or the house, he's a soul winner. This guy over here, he's a soul winner. Soul winner, soul winner, soul winner. Now let's get something straight. If any souls have been won to Christ through the ministry you serve in, it wasn't you that won them. You didn't win anything. If, if, if someone thinks that they can go out and preach Christ and win souls, they probably also think that they won their own salvation through their merits. I hear people say this all the time, I'm a soul winner, be a soul winner. Typically you hear it in charismatic circles. It's absolutely preposterous. No human being is a soul winner. Christ alone 
is the soul winner. He is the soul winner. If anyone has been won through the ministry that you preach in, that you teach in, that you, that you disciple in, it wasn't you. It was God the Holy Spirit. So guess what? Stop calling yourself a soul winner. And if you hear people say it, go ahead and correct them. And if you, by chance, are here visiting and you attend a church where that's a theme all the time, run! That's humanism. It's disgusting. You aren't a soul winner. You are a servant. And God works through the word that you proclaim. Notice how I said through the word of God that you proclaim. That's what I meant. It's through the word that people come to faith. Through the hearing of the truth. If you preach truth, God may work through that preaching and save those whom He's determined to save. That's the soul winning. The beauty is that you play a part in that because you're the one speaking God's Word, but it ain't you that's winning. That's all. And I say to anyone who thinks the otherwise, well, you know, I'm a soul winner and all that. I say, grow up. Come on now. Or better yet, repent and believe the true gospel which leaves no room for human boasting. None! Destroys it. The true gospel, no room for human boasting. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It just, no one can boast. I can't boast about people who get won to Christ at this church if they do. I can only boast in Christ because he's the one that does this stuff. Huge that we get this. this is, we're going to go into a series next week for the next three weeks and it's called heresy and we're going to deal with this stuff. I'm sick of it. It's everywhere. I hate it when I do it. There's little things that I say at times and ways that I act that are heretical. But heresy is so prevalent today. It just comes in a multitude of ways. And it's always perfectly packed and looks very Christian. Soul winning is heretical to say that you're a soul winner. Believe it or not. So I hope that you all return for the next three weeks Half of you are saying, I'll make sure that I'm in the Bahamas those weeks. I don't want to hear it. That's sad. I think you'll all want to be here, right? I know Paul Rogers will. He likes that stuff. He gets all turbocharged on it. Guys, we got to do something. No, nah, that's not him. That was countrymen right there. We got to do something. We got to do something here. All right. Look at 25 through 28. might be worth mentioning that Paul did see that the room was divided and he began to issue a devastating warning to the obstinate Jews who rejected the gospel. Remember, the room was divided. And so look at 25 through 28 now. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. <laughs> yeah, this is like, that's my, that's my cue. The Holy Spirit, he said this, this is the statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. And then he says in 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And I love that little extra line, they will listen. 
In verses 26 through 27, Paul quoted Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, which has to do with Isaiah being sent out by God to warn Israel about the dullness, about their dullness towards the Word of God. This was a critical moment in Israel's history. You know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, these prophets came and Israel was way off track, steeped in idolatry. And these guys came warning them, look man, you have grown dull, dull of ear, dull of eye to the word of God. You're not, you're not, you're listening to the false prophets, not to God's true prophets. And if you continue to do so, God is going to discipline you. And we know that not long after that, they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and carted off to Babylon. Isaiah called for Israel to repent and believe the truth. And yet, she continued in disbelief and then was destroyed. Paul took this prophetic warning and applied it to the disbelieving Jews of Rome. It's like he's saying, you know what Isaiah said way back about 800 years ago? Remember that prophecy about Israel not listening to the prophets, not believing the warnings, not believing the truth? You remember what happened? Remember that guy named Nebuchadnezzar, the name that no one else can spell? Right? I've Googled it a thousand times. I, I always have to copy and paste. Um. Remember what happened to them at his, because of what he did to them because they wouldn't listen? You guys are fulfilling this prophecy again through your disbelief, through your hardened hearts, through your dull ears, through your dull, blind eyes. You are fulfilling this prophecy. This is what he's saying. He's saying, man, you guys are acting just like our ancestors, stubborn and hardened, disbelieving. In a way, they had rejected Paul, the messenger, right? He proclaimed Christ. He proclaimed him as Messiah, the kingdom of God. And they rejected him. Some of them did. These obstinate, stubborn ones did. And they rejected Paul right in this moment, just as their ancestors had rejected Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. Paul's hearers were fully aware of what happened to Israel for not listening to Isaiah Right? They knew. They knew what he meant. They knew their history. They were taught it from, you know, when they were wee little ones all the way up to adult age. They knew what Paul meant. Oh, you're saying that this is going to happen to us too? You're an idiot. It's not going to happen to us. Unfortunately, Paul's warning, quoting Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, did not generate a right response from his hearers they remained unmoved Paul issued another rebuke that had a lot more sting on it I think because they obviously just quickly rejected the other one it would you don't understand we're Jewish leaders we get the law and all that we if there's anyone in this whole community that gets the way God is and all that it's us so you're an idiot you're way off and then so what he 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 took that rejection and then he added another forceful rebuke. He told them that God was bringing salvation, basically taking it away from them and giving it to the Gentiles. Now, this was unthinkable. 
You're telling me that you're going to take away our Messiah and our salvation and our future kingdom and glory. You're going to take it away from God's chosen people and give it to a bunch of scroungy chihuahuas? A bunch of nasty, defiled, pork chop slapping Gentiles? Have you lost your mind? This guy is a lunatic. This is what they would have been thinking. Salvation to the Gentiles, impossible, never. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back right here in the text. That was it, man. They would not listen to Paul any longer, right? They began to funnel out the front door. It says they departed. That was it, man. And by the way, because of your obstinance and rejection, God is taking salvation to Gentiles. They'll listen. You won't, but they will. And that was it. They were just like, man, I can't, I can't listen to this anymore. It's like one of those sermons where God has you, you know, he has you pointed out, you know, and you're sitting there listening to it and you're realizing, man, he's talking to me. I'm doing real bad at this. I think I'm going to get out of here and go to an early lunch because you don't want to hear it any longer. That's what was playing out here. They just didn't want to listen to it anymore. Impossible for this to happen to God's chosen people. They just got out of there, man. They bounced. They rolled out. So, so, very, very, very sad. God brings the truth into a place like that and and people remain unmoved just like I did for 31 years. Hmm. Tough, man. And walk out without the hope of Christ. Hung up on their traditions and religion and self-focus. You know this happens in churches today where Christ is preached truthfully, transparently, honestly, right from the Scripture. And, and people get saved and, and others walk out going, that was this stupid hour waste of my time. Some of you might be thinking that right now. This is a waste of my time. Christ. Whatever. Your disbelief doesn't make it untrue. What you think and what you believe doesn't change the truth. Truth is the truth. Men are like grass. They wither, get blown away or thrown into the fire. The truth endureth forever. Forever. Look at 30 and 31. This is great right here. He lived there, Paul. He lived there two whole years at his own expense (laughs) and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke closed out the book of Acts with basically four details about Paul's ministry in Rome and 
If you've read the book of Acts or been with us for most of this study, you know that these four things sort of encapsulate Paul's entire ministry from beginning to end. It's like Luke chose to summarize the exact way that Paul ministered the entire time from the Damascus Road right after that, just a few days after that, he gathered his, you know, he got his sight back, he was baptized, and from that moment on, this is the way that he did ministry wherever he went. It's a little summary statement. And in some ways, I feel like the book of Acts just kind of goes, and then this was happening, this happens, and ah, it just kind of ends very abruptly, doesn't it? And he ends with this wonderful four details about Paul's ministry in Rome. Number one, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He was a tent maker. He was bivocational. Paul um, would stay at certain churches for the time that God wanted him to be there, two years here or a few months here or three months on Malta or wherever, and he was never really... He never really became the lead pastor of a church in a way he was while he was there, but he was really interim. He was training up elders, pastors, if you will. And so it's, it's not like he went to a church, got a job as a pastor like today, and got a salary. And, you know, and then on the weekends, well, not the weekends, but maybe Tuesday or Fridays, like the universal pastor off day, played golf on that day. Paul did not live as ministers live today. He earned his own income not to be a burden to the church. And I, I don't think that... People have taken this and gone crazy with it. I know I got annihilated by a couple that was here in the early days. And um, I was kind of thrilled that God moved them somewhere else. Um, I was, because they harassed me about this. They found out that I was getting a stipend and hammered me. You shouldn't be getting it. Look at Paul's example. You know, that's, Paul said, don't, don't, don't muzzle the ox... Paul wasn't opposed to a minister, to a gospel worker getting paid for the work. He wasn't opposed to that. But that's just not the way that he lived and did ministry. He did not want to put a burden on churches. He earned his own money and still did ministry. He did kind of like, well, he definitely did, and I would say in a far superior way, what I'm doing now by being bivocational. And I actually like it a lot. I do. But that's what he did. He, you know, For two whole years he was here doing this. And, and making his own money and being a minister. And it says in two, he, or num- number two, secondly there, he welcomed all who came to him. Didn't matter who you were. You showed up at his residence, at his house arrest place. He welcomed you in and would proclaim Christ. Welcomed them in. There was a hospitality kind of vibe going here. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, come on in, man. You want to talk? Oh, yeah. Of course, number three, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Again, God's sovereign sphere of salvation and and obviously the millennial kingdom and and the eternal kingdom and all that. He just proclaimed all of that. He used the Old Testament and, and pointed it all to Jesus, the true king, the king of kings. Fourth, he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Notice the word Lord. Oh, they proclaim lordship salvation over there, and it's wrong. No, it isn't. Jesus Christ is Lord and must be received as Lord. You submit yourself to his lordship. That's true salvation. And it comes automatically 
in the DNA of regeneration. Somebody doesn't, you know, well, I, you know, I, I, I didn't get lordship or submit myself for the first 20 years that I was saved. I would say you wasted 20 years and got saved 20 years later when you figured out he was Lord. This whole idea that, you know, I, I don't have to think of Jesus as Lord. Yes, you do. He is the Lord of all creation. He is Lord. And Paul preached the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourself is what he would have preached to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All who call upon who? Jesus Christ? No, the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And he did it with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that a trademark of his? Boldness all the time. The guy's in jail with boldness, not with a spirit of timidity. Don't do it, Timothy. Be a bold man for Christ. The Holy Spirit has made you bold. Preach Christ boldly, without hindrance. Didn't let anything distract him. Didn't let anything get in the way of that. Even the guard who was chained to him. He did this for two years in Rome. He also wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, maybe even Hebrews. At least the church believed that for a lot of centuries. It's kind of a recent thing where they went, eh, I don't think he did it. But I tell you what, whenever I read Hebrews, there's some phrases and things in there that make me absolutely believe it's Paul. And then there's others that I say there's no way it could be him, but it had to be somebody like him. He may have even written Hebrews, and we don't know during that time, but I know for a fact he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. What are those, the prison letters? What happened after the two years, right? Was Paul executed? Was he beheaded? No, 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 no. Not at this point. No, he was actually released because his accusers never showed up at Rome. So what happened? The charges were dropped, right? In the Roman court system, your accuser had to come and say the charges and say, hey, this is what we've got against him. Those guys never made the journey from Judea to Rome. They never showed up. And after two years of him waiting, but he wasn't sitting there on his hands, was he? Ministry, ministry, ministry. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Mission, mission, mission. They finally released him. And what did he do after that? Now it was time to retire, settle on a nice Mediterranean island, a little hula, you know. No, 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 no. Actually, he went to Crete and Miletus and Colossae and Trous and Philippi and Corinth and Nicopolis, maybe even to Spain. While in Corinth, he wrote 1 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And after leaving Nicopolis, or maybe returning from Spain, we're not sure, he circled back and revisited again Miletus, Trous, and Corinth again. In 66 AD, he was arrested and returned to Rome and while in jail during that time, he wrote to Timothy, in which he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, knowing that his trial and execution were coming. And shortly after he completed that letter, he was executed by beheading. Wrapping it up, there have been many brothers and sisters throughout history who have impacted the mission of the church in an incredible way. But I'll tell you this, I'm convinced of it that Paul still stands in a class of his own. There's never been anyone like him. Not only did he 
you know, spread the gospel. And not only was he maybe, the, we call him the all-time greatest missionary the church has ever had. But he was also an apostle who received and recorded divine revelation. And that sets him apart. However, if Paul were with us today, he would not want us to focus on him or to celebrate his accomplishments. Most of the book of Acts is about his accomplishments, not necessarily his accomplishments, about the church and about what he did for Christ. And it would be easy to stop and say, wow, what a great guy! But he would not, would not under any circumstances want us to pause and give him a round of applause or to focus on him. What would he do? He would do what he's always done in the book of Acts, point to the Lord Jesus. He would. Now I'd like for us to, to focus on the Lord Jesus during communion. That's the point of it. It's been the whole point of this series to highlight Paul's ministry, to highlight what the church did in the early years in the first century. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I don't know if there's ever been another time, another period where the church has advanced the gospel so aggressively, maybe during the Reformation, but this is an amazing thing that happened that we've studied and looked at, but, but the point is Jesus. I would like for us during communion to to ponder and to celebrate His goodness and faithfulness to us, right? Because this series is a testimony to His goodness and faithfulness to us. It is. Many of us have been to a number of churches or maybe grew up at a particular church where things were a little different and things were done differently and maybe the preaching was different. Maybe you're still at a church where it's different. And I'm telling you that what God has done here and accomplished for us is, is the good stuff, If you don't believe me and you've never been anywhere else, go visit another church for a little while. In fact, Jared goes back, where do you go, Colorado, every year pretty much to visit your mom, and he always texts me and says, I just went to this church, and I'm so happy and blessed that we're at RHC because this guy spent 45 minutes talking about his shoes or whatever. We are spoiled. Hundred and eight sermons, two years of preaching, thirty-five hundred words per sermon, three hundred and seventy-eight thousand total words, eight hundred and fifty pages of commentary written, fifteen hundred study hours. It's a bit overwhelming. It's overwhelming when we think about how good and faithful Christ has been to wretches like us. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, and I'm praying book after book in the future. I am overwhelmed. Let's praise Him for His goodness and faithfulness during communion, okay?